Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uplifting Impact podcast. I'm Justin Ponder, Chief Information Officer with Uplifting Impact, and I'm excited to be hosting you today as we dive deeper into our journey to make the world more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Today, I'm excited, very excited to be talking with Tom Deary. Tom is the co-founder and COO of Rising Tide Car Wash, an organization that employs over 90 individuals with autism in a successful car wash business. He's also the co-founder of Rising Tide U, an organization dedicated to teaching others how to harness the autism advantage. In partnership with the University of Miami and the Taft Foundation, Tom created the Autism Advantage, the first step-by-step online course that's designed to help parents learn how to build sustainable social enterprises that employ their loved ones with autism. Tom is a Forbes 30 under 30 social entrepreneur and the forthcoming author of The Power of Potential, How a Non-Traditional Workforce Can Lead You to Run Your Business Better. Welcome to the show, Tom. Justin, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Oh, the pleasure's all mine, especially after reading that bio and seeing all the things that you do. We're really grateful that you can find time for us. It is totally my pleasure. So quick icebreaker. If you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would it be and why? Oh, um, <laughs> you know, I, I would have to say probably still uh, Theodore Roosevelt. It was always a, an idol of mine growing up and, you know, the adversity that he overcame in his life and all the really amazing things that he did. Totally one, one, of, one of my idols. I'd love to hear a first person perspective from him. And what would you talk about? Probably mainly about uh, conservation and wild places and mm. all, all the adventures that he'd gone on. I, and that to me is probably the coolest stuff that he did. And speaking of adventures, what inspired you in this adventure for you and your team to start Rising Tide Car Wash? Specifically, like we said in the intro, with a mission to employ individuals with autism or autistic people. Yeah, so... My family is affected by autism. My brother, Andrew, has autism. And, you know, when he was graduating high school, it became really clear really quickly that we were going to have to act as a family in order for him to lead the full adult life that we knew he was capable of. He had worked really hard in school, had incredible teachers, and uh, had really grown into a, a kind, competent, and, and caring young man. But, you know, there, there weren't really, there were really no opportunities uh, for people with autism and particularly for him in the community that we were living in. So, you know, my dad at this point had been an entrepreneur for 20 plus years and, and I had, was finishing my undergraduate business degree and we decided we were going to, we we're going to build something that, that could hopefully employ Andrew and, and many other people like him. And luckily a decade later, it's been successful. Uh, we've got, um, Three car washes here in South Florida that employ just about you know ninety individuals with autism. Business is quite profitable and and uh, healthy and and continuing to try to grow it. And you know through that process, we've learned a lot of things about not only how to employ people with autism, but how to kind of leverage the insights that that come from employing people with autism into I think building just better businesses for for mm-hmm. most people to interact with. And that's a great point, is that lots of times we think about disability as something that happens in the individual body, as opposed to something that happens between the individual body Mm -hmm. and a society, a workplace that doesn't make adjustments for them. 
So it becomes much less about a disability in the individual as accessibility between that individual and their context. So you mentioned lots of things that you've learned from working with this particular population that just plain old make business better. What might be some of the things that you would recommend, some of the things that you've learned about making the workplace more accessible for either autistic people, people with autism, all kinds of different folks with different accessibility statuses, but also all kinds of different individuals from different backgrounds in general? Yeah, I think um, at the most foundational level, what, what we've learned is that really good organizations look to make the implicit explicit. And that mm. is really what our employees with autism need more than, more than anything else. Uh, like you said, a lot of it isn't, it's not necessarily anything wrong with our team members. They're, generally, they, they process information and perceive the world differently than neurotypical people do. So a lot of the things that an, a neurotypical person might take for granted as, you know, implicitly obvious, like doesn't need to be said, needs to be made explicit for, for our team members. But I think when you really study organizational, you know, organizations and, and you look to see what really good managers do, that's a lot of what they're doing right? It, mm-hmm. it is setting clear expectations, providing, you know, clear training and how do you meet those expectations and, and then um, holding people accountable, but, you know, pushing people to, to be their best. And that's a lot of what we've done. And, and um, you know, there's a lot of different components to that, different tactics we can, we can talk about as far as how we, we operationalize those things, but really at its most fundamental level, it's making the implicit explicit that's fantastic and that's a fantastic point for just plain old being a better organization and especially for engaging these populations as well because like you said it's frightening how often we make supposed business decisions based on things like culture fit Mm. and like whether it's hiring or who gets the best projects or who gets promoted but then when we at uplifting impact work with organizations and consulting we're like okay so you're talking about culture fit what is the culture that one is fitting into? Well, just the way we do things here. Show us explicitly. So I like this. Yeah. And we see study after study that shows teams, organizations, and leaders who work with diverse communities, they experience greater frustration because they have to make the implicit explicit. However, precisely that slowing down is what makes them better leaders. Like mentors who mentor across social groups, so along lines of across from different racial groups, different gender or sexual orientation groups, different ability statuses. People who mentor have mentorships across the mentees are five times more likely to get promoted, but the mentors are six times more likely, Mm. precisely because like you said, wait, all these things I took for granted, I have to interrogate. Do you find that to be the case? Oh man, yeah. I think like every new manager that I've ever worked with is frustrated with that exact thing. Like, well, I have to keep <laughs> saying this. Like, I, I said this like yeah. already, and I love you know the idea of of seven times in seven different ways to get a point across. That's something that we use a lot, or or just trying to be ten times more clear than you think you have to be, because that's again, it's like you have to embrace it. It's not that person, right? It's not this person is is uh you know not trying to listen to you or doesn't want to do it. It's a lot of times there's an entrenched behaviors or things that you don't know anything about, and it just needs to be made really clear. And your job as a manager is, is really to do that. And I find that when we have managers that really experience purpose in our workplace and 
and want to be here and, and like doing this for, for a longer period of time, it's because they embrace that idea and that that's really their role. And it's okay for the person not to, not to get it at first. It's totally okay. We're just going to keep working through it. We're not going to personalize it. We're not going to get frustrated with that person. In fact, I, I think we like to take that even a step further in that a lot of our organizational design stems off of the idea that we're going to design around the people who are struggling the most within our organization. So, you know, we take this idea of designing for extreme users kind of, again, fundamentally, that's really what we've built this organization around, right? People with autism are in some ways extreme users of, of organizational systems. They need, um, mm. they push the systems to be really clear and consistent. Um, and what works for them tends to work for a lot of other people. But when we, we drive that into a daily practice, that's the person who is you know, struggling with a task that, you know, isn't able to meet some standard that we have, whether it be a, a time standard or a speed standard or a process, you know, following a process properly or being able to follow a script or any of the different things that we use at work. And then really trying to understand why is that person struggling, getting in there with them, understanding from their perspective why they're struggling. And often that leads to insights that make it better for everyone else. And, and we try to design around that exact thing. So when, when someone's struggling, you know, thing that just came up recently, right? We've got um, this young man, he has an intellectual disability as well as autism. Uh, he's a really hard worker and he really wants to be a supervisor with us. And part of that is to be able to close the cash every night. So there's some, some math associated with that. Um, and we've had team members that have kind of weaker math skills do this before we designed this essentially like a monopoly board that organizes the cash mm -hmm. to make it easier to do this. But, but this young man, we had to take it a step further because he uh, really, he can count is as far wow. as the math skills go. So, so even kind of basic adding was really challenging for him. So, you know, with a little bit of Excel magic, built a, a little calculator for him where he just has to count the bills put it into this Excel, and then it spits out how many of each bill he needs to be in, in each bank. Um, and you know, this, now he can, he can close the money. Not only does that help him get to where he wants to go and, and help him feel like we value him, it makes it where there's probably now many other people in our organization who are going to find it way easier to close the money every night, and maybe some more that otherwise wouldn't be able to, to, to master that skill that now can. Right. So that's yeah. the type of thing that we try to do regularly. And that's fantastic because it almost sounds like having people from diverse populations, you're talking about particularly neurodiversity. It's like having a constant auditor, mm -hmm. like interrogating the systems. We're like, Ugh. and quite often we get complacent. We develop our systems like, okay, I did that once eight years ago, <laughs> never have to question it again. But having people there with different backgrounds are constantly having us question and it can be frustrating. And that's why we avoid it. But you highlighted, if we really know our systems, we're constantly improving. And I think about that principle of Kaizen, of continuous improvement. Rather than waiting until a catastrophe happens, we have some there. Wait, how are different ways we could make procedures for counting the money? What are different ways that we could do things? So I love this idea that you laid out about different approaches to this work that help us be more creative and innovative. But what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions with neurodiverse populations and neurodivergent populations? Because I, I think it's 
we talk about oftentimes visible disabilities, visible diversity, mm-hmm. where we can see someone like we see like me, oh, Justin is a black man. And whether we knew it or not, we start to make adjustments to our behavior. Mm-hmm. And whether or not we can maybe make a little more inclusive allowances, that's different than I would have done it. But from what I can tell from his phenotypes, from his skin color, maybe it's a cultural thing. But we often don't have this with the populations you're talking about. What do you feel are the most often misconceptions where people don't take time to consider maybe someone's operating off of a completely different cognitive processing system and they just immediately jump to judgment like, well, that person's lazy, disengaged or not paying attention. What are some of the most common misconceptions you see? Yeah, I think there's there's two that really come to mind right away. And so for our, our team members that like have no intellectual disability and and they are they're they're neurodivergent uh they're generally have autism so they communicate differently but they 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 are intellectually normal or or above average and with them there's a this conception that uh they don't have empathy mm. or that they don't you know that they they only care about themselves and i mean it it couldn't be further from the truth Many times they express these things differently. Yeah. And I think that's really like when, you, when you're talking about this segment of the autism community that is intellectually average or above average, that's, it, it truly is just a different way of being. And, and the world and our culture is not very well designed for that. So yeah. they chafe up against it. They can get frustrated. Obviously, you would too. And if, mm-hmm. if you were constantly running into things that like, didn't make sense to you and everybody else is like, of course it makes sense. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah. So, so that kind of really believing that it, it's really this person is, has just as much skill or capability as anybody else. There is just a, a different, truly a different way of seeing the world and let's embrace that. And that makes us all better. And that's like, as you can see, that's how we build our organization. So we really truly believe that. And then the second piece is that for our team members that may have some intellectual disabilities, like my brother, again, autism shouldn't be looked at as a disability that requires sympathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, could, it should be looked at as a, a valuable diversity. Uh, you know, even so, for instance, right, most of our team members that stay in our aftercare associate roles, so the ones that are actually physically doing the cleaning work in our, on the cars, most of them have some some level of intellectual disability. And you could look at that as like, okay, well, they have a disability. Like they're um, but in, in this particular context, they like this work, they like this routine, this consistency, something that most people would not like. It would yeah. not it, it would be boring and monotonous, and mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to do it for a long period of time. Yeah, we have mm-hmm. team members that do, have done this for a decade and still enjoy it. And so it sounds like retention. Exactly. Driving it's productivity re- and retention. Mm-hmm. That's correct. And so, again, it's, it's all context. It's all contextual. And in, in our context and in many contexts, you know, it's not just car washes. I'm sure this would translate to restaurants, dry cleaners, all host of other entry-level frontline roles that it's a strength can be a strength. Yep. And I think that like diversifying 
what we define as qualifications, but also as assets or strengths too. Like there's a whole lot of people listening right now who are having enormous problems with employee turnover. It is the number one cost and number one preventable cost in US-based businesses. So if you're like, ah, I can't keep anybody for longer than three months, but you've never considered looking at different communities with on the autism spectrum, different neurodiversity communities, but also haven't made the adjustments internally to make set them up for success and set yourselves up for alignment so a question that i have for like on the individual level is you said you know all the frustrations that can happen for these folks and you said like quite often some of their behaviors for example like processing information differently and maybe communicating response like right now we're giving each other all kinds of nonverbals, like eyebrow raising smiling nodding that might be absent from other people, but are processing differently. It becomes so easy to moralize that and say, that person is rude. 100%. What kinds of like micro SOPs do you have for yourself that you would recommend for people out there like, oh, you know, I have some people on my team or we're hired someone. What kinds of things can you keep in place where frustration runs high? And I, every ounce of my amygdala wants to jump out and lash like, that is bad behavior. What kinds of things do you keep in place or would recommend for us to keep in place? to remember diversity of experience, diversity along the lines of neurological status, ability status, to maintain neurodiversity as opposed to moralize against it? Mm, that's a great question. So first and foremost, it's to pause, right? When you're starting to, <laughs> starting to feel that way, it's, okay, this is my cue to, to pause. And exactly, don't react. And then is to ask questions, right? And to ask you know, Steve, did you, you know, when, when I, when I just asked you that, you just kind of, it felt like you brushed me off. W was that what's going on here? Am I, am, am I misinterpreting this? Did you understand what I, what I asked? And most of the time he would say, no, I, I get it. I was just thinking about it. Like, and, and, you know, we, we move on. Right. And, and just that, that again, and making that implicit thing, this thing that I'm building up in my head that, oh, this guy isn't paying attention to me or doesn't care or is being rude by making that explicit and, and saying, finding a, a neutral way to phrase that so you can, you can say it in a way where it doesn't become emotionally charged. Oftentimes you, you learn something. It's like, nope, that's just the way he's, he thinks, right? He, needs, he needed a second to think about it. And yeah, maybe he made a weird facial expression as he's processing it, but it wasn't directed at you. And, and you know, and eventually you, you just like any other team member, you, you learn your team members idiosyncrasies and things that are different about them, just like every human. And you're like, okay, like, I know I'm going to go up to Dave. I'm going to say something. I'm not going to get like a, a smile or a thumbs up. <laughs> <I'm> gonna, <laughs> not going to happen. It's okay. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to confirm that he understands what I'm saying and we're going to move on and he's going to do it exactly as I asked and it's going to be just fine. And I think you mentioned valuable things there about differences of what responses look like. I think it's also important, like when we think about along lines of different racial or ethnic or national groups, the United States has a very particular way of responding to things. Around the world, people are like, why are they always so responsive? Why do they use their hands so much? Why are they so smiley? <laughs> I think about particular cultures. I saw a story today, and it was talking about in Japan, post-COVID, as people are removing masks, there are smiling coaching classes. Leading up to the Sochi Olympics in Russia, 
There were training sessions for people who lived in the community around where the Olympics were going to be, training sessions on smiling. It's not because people are mean or cold. Right. It's because like, just so you know, like you're going to have a lot of people who are used to a whole lot of smiling. <laughs> and then the rest of the world looks at US Americans like, why are they smiling so much? What is going on? And I think it's like dishonest. It's suspicious. So we think this universe is smile. I'm friendly. I smile at every person who passes by where we could have somebody who's neurodivergent be like, why is that person smiling? It seems suspicious. Something's wrong. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's that's the thing, right? Is it's not just neurodiversity, but it's also different lived experiences. A lot of these things are, you know, a lot of things that, that would work well for someone with autism also make it easier for people from different cultural backgrounds to also integrate into, into a different uh, situation. Yeah. So Tom, you had like this awesome experience, like reading through all these things, everything from Rising Tide Car Wash to Rising Tide U <laughs> to University of Miami and the Taft Foundation working with the Autism Advantage. So throughout all this time, what are some success stories or examples of neurodivergent individuals who have overcome these challenges and organizations who have overcome their challenges as well to kind of meet in the middle and align, what are some examples of what success looks like? Yeah. So, I mean, I can answer it first for, for our organization, and then I can talk about other organizations too, because there's certainly many groups that are doing wonderful work in this area. Uh, so, so for us, the ones that make me so excited are really, there's two different routes, and it's our team members who work really hard and, and get promoted within our organizational structure. Someone who may, you know, have a, a bunch of like things socially that they need to work through in order to manage other people uh, and give good customer service. Because even though you know we're really inclusive and accepting, you still have to give a level of service that you, the general population is going to to feel as good service. So learning these learning these things and persevering through a lot of just you know just kind of generally taking longer than than they would like it to and and than it norm that would for a, a typical person. So that one is always amazing. I had a recently, oh, I was actually on our Christmas party, so I guess it's not that recent anymore. Um, but we, uh, we had a young man who has been working with us for, I think, four years now, and he just got promoted to supervisor. And he was so excited that we, when we, we promoted him at their Christmas party, he was so excited. He actually lifted me up onto his shoulder. And he's like six foot five. So it was quite a ways up. <laughs> and, and like, he was just absolutely like one of the happiest days of his life. He said, and that was, <laughs> that was really amazing. And then another group that I, I really, that, that really gives me a lot of inspiration from, uh, for our team members is, is the folks that move on to, to other jobs. Right. So what we're hoping for isn't to be the, the, the job for everybody, for their career. For many of our team members, it's more appropriate for them to work with us to, as a first job and then to move on to other things that more closely align with what they want to do. And, you know, we've had, had team members now move on to uh, aviation maintenance and uh, auto body maintenance and uh, different, many different community organizations. And that's really, really something that gives us a, a lot of purpose. We're really happy when we see that happen with our team members. They move on to something that they're excited to do beyond just, you know, us. And, and sometimes they come back and that's awesome too. But uh, really to be that first job where they get something on their resume and then they can go do things that 
they want to do like everybody else. And as far as other organizations, so there's, there's big companies like Microsoft, SAP, uh, mm -hmm. Dell, uh, Ford, JP Morgan that are doing really, really awesome work. I mean, like really bringing the field forwards. Uh, nice. There's the group at or well, roundtable at Disability Inn, which is a, a large nonprofit for for uh, disability inclusion, uh, called the Neurodiversity at Work Roundtable, and and that group has been sharing resources now for, I mean, six seven years at least, wow. and and really bringing more organizations in and getting people to try this stuff, and and I think that that's been really really inspiring to be a part of, and then there's another organization that's our size, but does very different work. They are a fully distributed workforce that does mainly like data quality assurance and, and software testing called Ultranauts. And they've mm -hmm. done such a cool job at, des again, designing their workplace for their employees, building all these sorts of internal uh, innovations to, to help drive inclusivity and to help understand how to give feedback appropriately to make... Um, different, you know, make the scrum protocol more inclusive. So really, really cool stuff. So if, if you guys are interested in, in neurodiversity uh, at work, uh, I would look at the neurodiversity at work roundtable as well as Ultranauts. Their website's really cool too. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about your resource, this awesome book, The Power of Potential. Can you tell us a little bit more about what inspired you, what you learned? Because you've been in this work for such a long time, but kind of bringing it all together what inspired you to start it, but also what you learned during the time and of writing it and what you hope people get by reading it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, fundamentally decided to write this book because we wanted to see other small and medium sized businesses recognize that this isn't just a nice thing to do. It's got real business teeth. And, you know, like, like, like you're saying, the, one of the biggest challenges that organizations are facing today is, is retention and, and talent acquisition. Mm -hmm. uh, many small businesses really struggle with differentiating their brands, building, you know, cultures that, that can scale the organization, right? Many times small business people get stuck because they're not able to build organizational systems that can grow with them, even if they have the business. And what we've found is that by designing for and with neurodivergent team members is we can solve pretty much all of those challenges all in, in wow. one, one, you know, essentially consistent methodology. And, mm. you know, that's from hiring, building objective and inclusive hiring practices to building really good training protocols uh, to creating psychological safety within the workplace and designing yes. around the needs of our team. And that's, that's really the reason our business is successful. And you, you, you know, we, we talked a little bit about our retention, but you know, keep in mind, we have 90 employees with autism in a five mile radius. So all three of our stores are within five miles of each other. And we have a wait list of people that want wow. to work for us. And that's very different than the experience most car washes have, where they have, you know, they have ads out on Indeed and, and such. And they might be able to get a, one or two new employees a month to, to come in and, and maybe they only last for a few weeks. It's, you know, mm -hmm. a win in this industry if someone makes it six months. Yeah. But that's not the experience that we have. And it's a real advantage for our organization. And there's a lot of other businesses that would benefit. And that's really the, the, the essence of the book is going through our story of how 
designing for neurodiversity has really transformed our business and, and a lot of the strategies and tactics we employ that other people can, can emulate. So this is a tough question, but I think a good one. So I'm, let's say I'm an individual contributor. Like I yeah. don't run a business. I'm not in charge of the policy and the changing things around. I can't make my workplace more inclusive. But what have you learned and what things do you hope individual readers get when they take away from the power of potential about how they can change their individual behavior, their micro behaviors, their interpersonal communication relationships with people they might not even know? are neurodivergent or even people that they do know, what would you be, think would be the takeaway for them? Yeah, it's, it's funny that you say that because I think when, when, I first, when we first launched the book, this was a question that I wasn't really sure how to answer. And, <laughs> uh, because, you know, it is, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur and, and I have, I, that's my perspective. So I, I don't have those limitations within an organization that an individual contributor in a big company might have. But what, what I found that's really cool is I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say, you know, so many of the practices in this book, I can just start doing, right? The idea of, oh, one of my team members is struggling. Let me understand why. Let me not first place blame on them as like, oh, well, they, you know, it's their fault that they're not able yes. to do, do stuff versus, hey, maybe the system is the reason that they're struggling and maybe I can find a, a, for, through talking to them, I can find a way to improve that for everybody. And, you know, that piece, one piece of uh, advice that we give in the book, I've had a bunch of people reach out and say, like, I've already started doing that, like right away, started changing my perspective about people that are struggling in my workplace. And then, you know, a lot of the coaching practices and psychological safety practices that we talk about and framing, you know, Failure as learning and and holding people accountable, you know, consistently uh, to the same standards and expectations. Those are all things that an individual contributor can can certainly bring to their workplace and help it make help make it more inclusive. Right. Thank you for helping us become a little more inclusive through your work, your book, and your time here with us today. So, Tom Derry, thank you very much for being with us. So, if people want to find out more about your book, about your work, about the things that you're doing, how can we get in touch with you? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Justin. It's been a pleasure to be with you today as well. And and uh, if people want to learn more, they can go to risingtidecarwash.com. Risingtidecarwash.com/slash/powerpotential is is where you can find a lot of information about the book. And then as well as risingtideu.com. We've got a lot of free resources on that website for people to take a look at as well. And um, you can find my email right on the website or, you know, reach out to us uh, through the, the info email that goes right to my inbox as well. Fantastic. And thank you to all of you out there listening in. We're glad you turned into this week's episode of the Uplifting Impact podcast. And we need more people like you to uplift the impact. In order to do so, be sure to share this episode, comment on it by going to our website at upliftingimpact.com or provide your thoughts directly to us through LinkedIn at Uplifting Impact, Justin Ponder, or Deanna Singh. Until next week, keep uplifting the impact. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>